Well, as you all know, I'm going to make a disclaimer. First, I'm a researcher, not a plagiarist. I've given credit at the bottom of the notes where all this came from, besides God's word. Um, and then I also want to say, I absolutely, positively, if my life were videoed, you would know I do not have this all figured out. So I am teaching as one beggar helping another beggar find the peacemaking bread. Um, so I want you to know that. And as it's funny because as I've already taught this for the Thursday women and the day that I taught that was the day the Russians told us they were going to essentially obliterate us. And then I was thinking, okay, well, what's going on in the world right now? And the big thing I've heard on the news, I don't know if any of you listen to the news, but if you know, Mickey Rooney died, you know, 90 something years old, and his family is fighting over his body. So his body is just stuck in limbo because they're fighting over it. I just thought, we're at a, we are a world at war with conflict and all, all kinds of craziness. But it didn't just, it's not just today. It started back at Genesis 3 at the fall. We see Adam and Eve's fellowship with God is broken. We see blame shifting. Which actually, I heard one of my grandchildren tell one of his cousins, you're blame shifting. And I was like, how do you know about blame shifting? He's like, mommy told me. I'm like, oh my goodness. Yes, blame shifting. And we saw that. We saw Adam actually, I mean, can you believe Adam's audacity? Okay, have you ever had this? Where you blame God because Adam says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the woman blamed Shiv. She blamed the serpent. She said, he deceived me, and I ate. Don't we all do that? And then Genesis 3.15, we see the very first announcement of the gospel. We see that Jesus is going to crush Satan's head, and that Satan is going to strike at Jesus' heel. Then we see Adam and Eve, they're out of the garden. The next thing we see, does anybody know what it is? It's Cain and Abel. It's a murder. So this started early on in scripture. We see, because of the fall, we see. If you're ever surprised that there's conflict, that there's a Mickey Rooney fighting over the body, that the Russians are going to blow us off the face of the earth, don't be surprised. It is a result of the fall. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And I'm sure as we're all going through our reading plans, we see trouble, we see strife all throughout Scripture. And it's not just in the Old Testament. Sometimes you think, oh, it's just all that conflict and wars and craziness is in the Old Testament. No, go to the New Testament. And I've just listed some examples. Um, Mark 2, 9 through 18. This is where the wise men are visiting the baby Jesus, and Herod was furious. 
he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem under two. He was furious, and that was the result. Um, John three twenty five through thirty six. There was there arose a discussion. Have you ever had a discussion? I have on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And the NIV says that discussion was what it really was, is an argument. An argument developed. Really? And one, one of the passages that I, is so interesting to me because you just see how people swing. Um, Luke four sixteen through 30. It's Jesus where he, he's in Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he goes on and he closes the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22 says, and all were speaking well of him. So they all were, yes, Jesus, we love him. And they were wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? So, okay, that's verse 22. We go through a few more verses. And then it says in the latter part of, I believe, verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Verse 28 says, And all the people in the synagogue were filled with joy and excitement at his words? No, they were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. This is in, you know, a few verses. We see they were speaking well of him, and now they're driving him to the end of the cliff. They were fickle. And Matthew Henry says on, this, on these verses, because there was a sense, what were they so angry about? And what he said is, they were ang what they were angry about was that he, Jesus, intimated some kindness God had in reserve for the Gentiles, which the Jews could by no means bear the thought of. They were so angry thinking that the Gentiles were going to be part, that the Gentiles were part of God's plan. We're not that different. I'm not that different. Um, another favorite one that is kind of close. Um, this is Mark 9, 33 through 35. And this is speaking of the apostles. They came to Capernaum, and when he, Jesus, was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. Okay, they were busted. They knew. Okay, for on the way, they had discussed with one, other, with one another which of them was the greatest. Okay, if that's not, doesn't ring true. If you have siblings, have you ever said, well, we, mom loves you best? I know I've had that discussion more than once with my brothers. So we see conflict even, even among the disciples, among the apostles. They're fussing over who's the greatest. 
And we can just go on and on and on. Acts 15, we saw the trouble between Paul and Barnabas and John Mark. We remember that when Scott talked talk that back in, I believe it was December. We see problems in the church at Corinth. We see Paul encouraging the Ephesian church to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. He needed to remind them. Um, James 4 says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? It's not a surprise that we have quarrels and conflicts. And do we think it's different today? Okay, I'm living through, I said if the video was following me around, conflict exists. These conflicts, though, they are a result of the fall. They're a result of sin. We should not be surprised. It's everywhere. All the way from somebody defriending you on Facebook to murder. You know, we, I, I don't know if you heard on the news, the young man that went through the high school with two swords or knives slicing 20 kids. He, I guess, was bullied, and that was his response. It's all around us, and the church isn't immune. There's an example in, in uh, the book of Philippians from the Philippian church. I've often thought about Judea and Syntyche, and I'm probably not pronouncing their names right, um, but I thought, I wonder what that was like. Maybe, you know, it's men and women together in somebody's house, house church, and they're probably one of them sitting way over there in the corner, and the other one's way over there, and they maybe have their arms crossed, maybe they're giving kind of an evil look to each other. And they're hearing for the first time the letter, the letter of Philippians being read, and it's kind of going along, and then all of a sudden, can you, I, I, I just have this picture. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Judea and Syntyche, I urge Anne, and I urge Sarah, get along. Okay, live in harmony in the Lord. Can you imagine being one of those women? And it's in scripture forever. Oh boy. I mean, really? Jeepers, Paul, thanks a lot. But they, I mean, I plead with Yudia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind of the Lord. I mean, he, Paul had to go to one of the other pastors and say, indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. He, he had to go and say, hey, can you imagine that would be, that would be like if Scott sent a letter to Smed saying, hey, Go help those two women. Go help Anne and Sarah get along. Sarah, wouldn't you be mortified? I would be mortified, okay? Sometimes we need that help. We need that fellow brother coming alongside and saying, hey, ladies, get along. We're going to look at that passage again later. But conflict's everywhere. It, becoming a Christian does not mean conflict just disappears. Our relationship with the Lord changes. We're no longer under God's wrath. We're given new abilities from the Lord to live in a 
way that pleases God, but conflict doesn't just disappear. There are bucket loads of commands to live at peace. Romans 12, 18, and this is one that's easy to remember. If Easy to remember, hard to live, okay? If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We are called to be at peace. 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about we have a ministry of reconciliation. Part of the gospel is helping unbelievers be reconciled to God. That's something God has given us to do. But in that, we are to be reconciled. 2 Corinthians 13.11 tells us to live in peace. Ephesians 4.1 Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 2 Timothy 2.22 Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We're to pursue peace. 1 Peter 3.8 says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And then it goes on, quoting Psalm 34. Verse 11 says, He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. And Matthew twenty-two thirty-four through 40 is, is pretty much the Christian life. Love God, love your neighbor. That's, it's a commandment. We are called to love our neighbor. So for us to live in peace, unity, and be like-minded, what do we need? We need the gospel. We need Christ's death on the cross for us. Um, from our biblical conviction number five, which last time I talked, we, we looked at one of the a couple of the biblical convictions, but it talks about the gospel. And on the in biblical conviction number five is about the doctrine of sanctification, how we become made like Christ. All of our efforts at peacemaking, they're for naught. If we're not in Christ, they're worthless. But because we're in Christ, as, and I'm quoting, as we seek to obey God to be a peacemaker, okay, I added that part, as we seek to obey God and be conformed to the image of Jesus, we must anchor all of our efforts in the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Just want to remind you, that's how you can be a peacemaker, is because of what Christ has done. He's the ultimate peacemaker. He made peace on our behalf with God. So as we keep going, just remember that. Remember as maybe that relationship that's really strained pops into your mind. You know what? Just remember the cross. Christ died for that sin. Now do what God has called you to do. 
live at peace with all men so far as it depends on you. Um, a couple preventative verses, and there's a whole bunch of them all throughout Proverbs, but I'll just read a few. Um, these are kind of like to try to help you stay out of conflict. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 18.2, the tongue has the power of life and death. Proverbs 12.18, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Proverbs 18.13, he who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. And one to remember all the time, Proverbs 10.19, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Um, where, sin, where words are many, sin abounds. So the definition of peacemaking, and this is something on your hand, handout, is responding to conflict biblically. So there's some different aspects of peacemaking. It's when I'm the offender, when I have sinned, or when I've been offended, offended when someone has sinned against me. So first we're going to take a look at when I'm the offender, my sin. What do I do when I've sinned against someone and need to seek their forgiveness? And I want to just kind of pause a moment and just say something about when you need to seek forgiveness. And Jay Adams, who's the father of biblical counseling, um, that's kind of what he's been labeled. And he talks about what are called heart sins. These are the ones that don't grow into full-blown sin against another. They are sins like lust, envy, covetousness. These sins need to be confessed to God. In other words, if I'm lusting after your beautiful purse or clothes or hair or, you know, whatever it may be, your house, whatever it may be, I don't necessarily need to go and tell you, you know, I've been lusting after your house because it's in my heart, okay? The biblical pattern is confess your sins to as wide of an audience that you have sinned against. So if I'm thinking sinful thoughts about someone, but it doesn't grow into a full-blown sin, I confess it to God. If on the other hand, I say something unkind to or about that person, then I need to confess to God and to the person. So if, say, I've been coveting your house and now I start making disparaging remarks about you for having that house, okay, now I need to go and seek your forgiveness. Um, and I also want to remind you to remember the difference between a mistake and sin. If you make a mistake and do something, that maybe actually, you know, let's say I make a mistake and on my way out of here, I grab somebody else's purse instead of my own. And I get all the way out of here, I drive home with it, and that leaves you stuck here because I took your everything. But it was a mistake. 
I probably don't need to ask you to forgive me for that. I just need to say, I'm really sorry I took your purse. I did not mean to do it. Now, if I took it because I'm mad at you and I want you stuck here, okay, I need to say, you know what, will you please forgive me? That was unkind of me to take your purse. I was really, I was mad at you and I took your purse. Please forgive me. Another thing is a counterfeit confession. Just, well, I'm sorry. All I'm sorry does is expresses a feeling. It asks nothing of the other person. Another counterfeit, and this is the one that you often see, especially among politicians when they have gotten caught with their hand in the cookie jar, it's, I want to apologize. And what an apology is, is a formal justification. It's a defense. So when somebody is apologizing, they're just defend, you're just defending yourself. You're giving an excuse. Another thing to avoid, please forgive me if, but, or maybe, perhaps. Please forgive me if I offended you when I said that horrible, mean thing about you. Um, so it wouldn't be okay to say, I am sorry if I hurt you, but you are difficult to get along with. Those are counterfeit confessions. <laughs> so how do we seek forgiveness? Well, the first thing is we confess our sin. We do it immediately. Matthew 5.23 instructs us, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. So to confess means to say the same thing. It's to agree with God. So we confess our sin to the Lord. 1 John 1, 9 tells us, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to confess. We need to repent. We need to change. We need to turn from our sin. And then we need to go. And if you're afraid to go, because it's not easy, okay, pray for God's grace to help you. So in order to respond to conflict biblically, I need to confess, I need to repent, I need to go. And these are on your outline from Peacemaker. There's seven A's of confession. Address everyone involved. All of those that you've affected. And that kind of goes back to what we talked about. Um, if it's just in in my heart that I'm struggling with something and I haven't full-blown um, let it come flying out of my mouth, then it's between God and me. But if I say something disparaging to this whole group of women about somebody, I need to come back to all of you and seek your forgiveness. Um, so you address everyone involved. You avoid if, but, and maybe. Don't try to excuse your wrongs, you know. Admit specifically both attitudes and actions. Acknowledge the hurt. Express sorrow for hurts, hurting someone. You can say, I am sorry I hurt you, when it's part of a actual, please forgive me. 
you know, I'm, you can, sometimes you realize, I know that must have hurt you. Um, that's okay to say, I'm sorry then. Accept the consequences, yeah, consequences, such as making restitution. Um, you know, if I, if I steal your purse and leave you stranded here, maybe I need to send the cab to pick you up. Um, alter your behavior. Change your attitudes and actions. And ask for forgiveness. And remind yourself of the gospel. You can change. We can change. We can be more like Christ. And what confession is, is saying to another, you are right. I did wrong you. I did sin against you. It is admitting what has been charged as true. In the final analysis, true confession is agreement with another that is in agreement with God's word. So what does it sound like? Will you please forgive me for not listening to your opinion? I'm sorry that I hurt you when I did that. Stick entirely to your own sin. It's not, you don't add that, you know. But if you weren't such a grouch monster, then I wouldn't have done that. So what if someone comes to me and tells me that I've sinned against them and I agree? That's easy, okay? How do I respond to that biblically, okay? I say, yes, will you please forgive me? And remember, be approachable. This is important in our everyday relationships, those in our homes, our workplace, our church, our small groups, our discussion groups. Be approachable. If somebody comes to you and points something out, thank them for coming to you. Ask them to forgive you. Confess your sin to God and thank the Lord for his mercy to you in revealing your sin and for paying the price for that sin and then repent and change. So what if somebody comes to you and tells you that you sinned and you don't agree? That happens. C.J. Mahaney says, don't be put off when a friend's observations may not be 100% accurate. I've found that there's truth to be gleaned at times, even from an enemy's critique. Humility doesn't demand mathematical precision from another's input. I do, but humility doesn't. Humility postures itself to receive God's grace from any avenue possible. Be humble when someone comes. Jerry Ragg, in Exemplary Spiritual Leadership, says in his chapter on criticism and how to deal with it, and I think having our sin pointed out feels often like we're being criticized. We need to learn how to listen. Don't just hear, but listen by showing genuine interest in what is being communicated. Ask questions when clarity is needed. Be careful, though, however, that questions are not an attempt to divert attention from the central issue being raised. For example, you could say, help me understand or please be patient with me and tell me again what the issue is. Godly responses. Hmm. Listening without interrupting or forming snap conclusions. Star this one. Don't attack the messenger. 
our question must be, Lord, how can I learn from what this person is saying? Don't look at the messenger and think, well, that person's not as godly as I am. They don't have a daily quiet time, so I am not listening to them. Okay? That's not what we need to do. First of all, again, thank them for coming to you, even if you don't agree. You be thankful that they cared enough to come. And I will tell you, I've talked to many gals that have needed to go and talk to somebody. It's not easy. It is just not easy. Thank them for coming. You may want to ask for some time to think about what they said. You can say you're sorry that you hurt them, but you need some time to think about it. You may want to ask for it. And this, you have to be ready for the right, maybe not the right answer, what you want to hear. Um, but you may want to ask others to help you see your sin, especially if it's an attitude or a tone. Pray about it and ask the Lord to show you if there's merit in what they're saying. And if you ask the Lord, he'll reveal it. And if you've sinned and you realize that you need to confess. And here's one more quote regarding what to do about those maybe difficult people in your life. Mary Elizabeth Baxter, she's a gal that lived in the 1800, and she was talking about difficult members in the church. She says, every difficult member in a church is a provision of God for the trial of the patience of some other members and very specially of the leaders. There is no chance in any of the arrangements which God permits. If we look at the difficult members in their relation to us, we may well have ground for complaint, but if we see them all as instruments in the hand of God, we know that not one word or one action can take place except it be needed for the education of his own. Wow. God will use those difficult people in our lives for our good and his glory. Do you view the people in your life as instruments in the hand of God? Wow. That's, that's sometimes a hard pill to swallow. I'd rather see them as a tool of Satan that's trying to make my life miserable. But no, they're a gift from God to help conform us to the image of Christ. One more side note, and then we're going to take a five-minute break. Jay Adams says, One must never confess as sin what he is not sure biblically is sin. So if that person comes and you're just going to agree with them, okay, 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 I, 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 I fess up, I, I did it, because you just want to get them off your back, that is not a biblical, that's not being biblical. Um, we should not confess to a sin that we don't believe we committed merely in order to appease another who has charged us with wrongdoings. Confession must be the genuine, heartfelt conviction of the repentant confessor. We want to be biblical. If we don't see it, we need to take time and pray about it. Like I said, we may need to ask someone 
to help us see what we're not seeing. We need to ask the Lord to help us. But just to confess to sin, just to, I don't want to deal with it, that's not being biblical. So we're going to come back in a minute and look at what to do when I've been offended, when someone has sinned against me. All right. So now we're going to look at when I've been offended, when someone has sinned against me. And they come to act, they come to me and they ask me to forgive them. What's required of me? Well, and here's a little star asterisk. Even if they don't ask for forgiveness perfectly, maybe they come and they say they're sorry or they throw in an if, maybe, perhaps, or maybe they're apologizing, we still need to be gracious and forgive. Okay, so if somebody comes and seeks your forgiveness, you need to forgive. That's what God has called you to do. And this is from Ken Sandy. This is forgiveness defined. To forgive someone means to release from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. Ephemi, a Greek word that is often translated as forgive, means to let go, release, or remit. It often refers to debts that have been paid or canceled in full. Charizome, another word for forgive, means to bestow favor freely or unconditionally. This word shows that forgiveness is undeserved and cannot be earned. As these words indicate, forgiveness can be a costly activity. When you cancel a debt, it does not simply disappear. Instead, you absorb a liability someone else deserves to pay. Sim similarly, forgiveness requires that you absorb certain effects of another person's sins and release a person from liability to punishment. This is precisely what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. He secured our forgiveness by taking on himself the full penalty of our sins. Remembering what he did to purchase our forgiveness should be our greatest incentive to release others from the penalty they deserve. And one of the primary passages you want to go to when you've been sinned against is Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And this is where Peter comes to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And at that point, Peter was being like really big by saying seven times because in the Jewish law, that was like it. And what does Jesus say? I do not say to you up to seven times, up to 70 times seven. That does not mean at 490 times, you're done. Okay, 491, you've sinned against me, I'm done, I don't have to forgive you. Jesus was saying over and over and over, always. And then Jesus goes on to say, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 
But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But now this person, okay, that's been forgiven, all of that goes out and finds the guy that owes him like 10 bucks and says, uh-uh, you got to pay me back. And that's exactly what we're like. When we, who have this huge big bag of sin, and we all do, I do, we all have that, Christ paid for that, and now we're going to go find somebody else and not be willing to forgive. That is exactly what that picture is in that parable, if we're unwilling to forgive. So we are called to forgive. Milky says, How often have I wasted precious time by revolving in my mind all the aggravations of the injurious treatment to myself while I am forgetful that every day I have offended God in a much greater degree. Forgetful also that I have daily received from him such tender mercies as might make me forget all the mischief that my fellow creatures could do to me. So if you're struggling with somebody's sin against you, go to Matthew 18, 21 through 35, and just remember how much sin you've been forgiven and that will help you to forgive someone else. Because in comparison, even if it's a really big, bad, continual, heinous sin, it's still against you, another sinner. When you look at your sin against your perfect Savior, the scales just kind of, it's like, oh, okay. Luke 17, 3, in talking about forgiveness, says, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. And at that, the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. We do need faith to forgive it's not always easy. I understand that. Especially when it's the same, maybe sin over and over. Especially that happens sometimes in our family relationships. So why do we forgive? Well, it's a command. We're commanded to forgive. John MacArthur in his book, Alone with God, sums up unforgiveness this way. He says, where there is an unforgiving spirit, there is sin, and where there is sin, there will be chastening. And unforgiveness is said to be like swallowing poison and waiting for the other person to die. First time I heard that, I was like, whoa, I need to think about that. But it is. If you walk around with unforgiveness, you're poisoning yourself. I've even heard people in the world talk about how important forgiveness is. They don't have the concept of what Christ has done, but they realize it's not good for you to be unforgiving. Their purpose 
for being a forgiving person is different. It's all about me. I should forgive so that, you know, I'm happy and healthy. There is some truth to that. But we're commanded to forgive. And it's a picture to the world. So our attitude towards someone who has sinned against us should be humble. Philippians 2.3 Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Proverbs 19.11 reminds us, A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is his, to his glory to overlook an offense. We need to be gentle. Galatians 5, 22, 23 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We need to be gentle when, we've been, when, when we're forgiving. We need to be patient. So what about when someone else is offending? Yes. Oh, yes, please. Yes. Can you address um, the global consequences or restoration of trust might have in that? That comes towards the end. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And and sometimes we want to well we'll we'll get there and if at the end it's not answered then then ask again. How about that? Okay. So what about when someone else is offending? What about when someone is sinning or sinning against me and they're not aware of it? Okay, we just dealt with somebody that's come because they recognize they had sinned against you. You need to forgive. But now they're offending and maybe they don't even know it. Okay, how do I respond biblically to that? So what are my options? I can choose to overlook the sin. There are some offenses that should be overlooked. Remember Proverbs 19.11 again, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. 1 Peter 4.8 says, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. That should be our attitude. Our heart should be to cover over a multitude of sins. Galatians 6.1, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. But there are times that overlooking someone's offense is not the loving thing to do. Ken Sandy gives some helpful suggestions for making that determination. First of all, is it dishonoring God? If someone who professes to be a Christian is behaving in such a way that others are likely to think less of God, his church, or his word, that may be a time where you need to go to that person. Is it damaging your relationship? Anything that has disrupted the peace and unity between two Christians must be talked over and made right. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Is it hurting others? Directly might be 
child abuse or drunk driving or indirectly by example it may be that the person is setting an example that encourages others to behave in a similar sinful manner if I got up here and spoke poorly about someone if I were speaking poorly about my husband that's setting a bad example you need to come to me is it hurting the offender drunkenness is an example um, Galatians 6 1 says brothers if someone is caught in a sin you who are spiritual should restore him gently if the sin doesn't appear to be doing serious harm to them it may be best to simply pray that they'll see their need for change without being confronted but on the other hand if the sin appears to be dragging your friend under you should try to help and a reminder we need to be careful we're not the fourth person of the Trinity if you need to seek counsel about whether or not to go you need to flatten out the details so you give enough information so the other person can help you but not know who it is um, it, don't turn it into you know here come join in my offense with me um, you need to do your best to flatten out the details and something else to consider is it a pattern or is it a one-time thing it may help you to think about it if you were the one doing whatever this thing is would you want someone to come and say something to you is it loving not to go to them is it loving to leave that person continuing on in whatever it is and another reminder and this one comes from my husband it's if you have something to gain by going to them for instance maybe your life will be easier if they stop doing whatever this is you really 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 we really need to check our motives is my motive in going all about me or am I looking for their best think about your timing if you know the person's exhausted or tired or doesn't think well first thing in the morning or last thing at night choose the best time for them maybe it's not the best time for you to go but you want to do the best thing for them when you go Proverbs 27 6 says faithful are the wounds of a friend but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy it may hurt them at first for you to go but the Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend it's a loving thing to go Proverbs 28 23 he who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue so if we determine that we do need to go and that we need to say some something to them Matthew 7 3 through 5 helps us to figure out how to go and what that is why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye how can you say to your brother let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye you hypocrite first take the plank out of your own eye 
and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You need to deal with you first and see, is there something I've done to contribute to the problem? And it may be in doing that, in working through your plank, you realize, I need, before I even go and talk to them, I need to go seek their forgiveness first. And some, it's not, you know, sometimes there's not like a magic formula. If I, I do this, this, this first. Sometimes it really does take a lot of prayer in determining how do I do this. But sometimes if you see that your sin in it first, you may want to confess your sin to them first and not even deal with the issue you think you, think you need to deal with with them. You deal with your own sin first. Um, if, if that's what you've determined. One really important thing is before you go to them, forgive the person in prayer before going. Go to the Lord and just say, you know, Lord, I forgive them, whoever fill in the blank, I forgive them for sinning against me. Um, and then when you go, when you need to say something, you go graciously, go tentatively. And Ken Sandy says, unless you have clear, first-hand knowledge that a wrong has been done, give the other person the benefit of the doubt and be open to the possibility that you have not assessed the situation correctly. Sometimes we get things wrong. Um, there, there are times where it's very clear a sin has been committed and you need to deal with it. But sometimes things aren't what we think. So we need, we need to go carefully. Proverbs eighteen seventeen, The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. And remember your attitude again, humble, gentle, patient. If you go... And they agree, and they say, yes, I did sin against you. And they seek your forgiveness. Grant them forgiveness. And then don't dwell on the incident. Don't bring the incident up again unless it keeps happening and you need to go back and admonish and say, remember we talked about this, and now you've done it again. Then you may need to bring it up again. Um, but if once you've forgiven, and let's say it never happens again, and six months later something completely different happens, you don't go back and say, yeah, but remember when you did that to me? That, that would be wrong. And remember when you've forgiven not to talk about the incident to others. That's called gossip. Um, and don't allow that incident to stand between us or to hinder the relationship. So what if I go to someone and they don't agree that this thing is sin and I, I'm still convinced that it is sin? Um, and you can read through the church's biblical conviction number six that may be helpful and it's the doctrine of sin. Um, and what what you may need to do if someone's refusing to repent of sin, and we're talking clear, defined sin, okay? 
not, and may, maybe you're not clear in your mind, is this sin or not? But at that point, you may need to go again and ask them again. Then you may need to go to step two in church discipline, and that's Matthew 18, um, and have another person go with you. That's having a witness. Um, and then if that, depending where what happens there, you may need to involve the elders. And I just want to encourage you, if you're in that situation, go. You may need to ask one of the elders for some help working through what you need to do. But you can go to the church's website and read through the doctrine of sin. And, and that will help you understand the steps of church discipline. Because you may need to take someone and go. So what if that person still is refusing to, to repent? What's, what should my attitude be at this point? They've been sinning, sinning against me. They're refusing to repent. Does that mean that the door is opened and now I get to sin boldly against them? No. Now what do I need to do? I need to control my tongue, continue to say only what is helpful and beneficial to others. I may need to seek counsel and support and encouragement from spiritually mature advisors. I need to keep doing what is right, no matter what others do to me. I need to recognize my limits by resisting the temptation to take revenge and by remembering that being successful in God's eyes depends on faithfulness, not results. And I need to continue to love my enemy, enemy by striving to discern and address his or her needs. And one footnote, there, there may be situations, let's say somebody is physically abusing you, you need to call the police, okay? That would be an appropriate step. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean that somebody has, should be beating me and it's okay and they get away with it. Involve the authorities where it's appropriate. Um, you may need to, see, again, seek counsel from the elders if you need help on something. So are there any questions at this point? Okay, I'll keep going. So now I want to look at our friends sitting on the other ends of the room, Yudia and Sintiki. Um, Paul gives some instructions in Philippians 4 to help us get along. Philippians 4, 4 says, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, 
practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And Ken Sandy has called that passage of scripture a mini course in peacemaking. And it's this is on your handout. Check your attitude and change it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Replace anxiety with prayer. See things as they are. And practice what you've learned. Those are some things you can do in the midst midst of a conflict. And this also comes from peacemakers. And that I, I can highly recommend and commend Ken Sandy and Peacemakers to you. Um, their website is full of helpful articles and a lot of free information. His book is helpful. Um, so I think we have it, on, I'm fairly certain we have it on the book table. So I would definitely, if you're struggling, um, and I have lent that book out to more than one person if that's in the midst of a conflict because it's got some real practical how-tos, things to consider. Speaking of restoration, it says, although reconciliation can sometimes take place with little or no special effort, in most cases you will need to remember the saying, if you are coasting, you must be going downhill. In other words, unless a deliberate effort is made to restore and strengthen a relationship, it will generally deteriorate. This is especially true when you are recovering from intense and prolonged conflict. Moreover, unless you take definite steps to demonstrate your forgiveness, the other person may doubt your sincerity and withdraw from you. And I, I think this is really helpful when a relationship has been in conflict. Peacemaking woman, women uses this analogy. True forgiveness sets us free to work toward restoration of the relationship. As is often the case, we may not feel like close friends at the end of the peacemaking process, even though we have reached a point of reconciliation. This is because the need for restoration still exists. To better understand this concept, it is helpful to make the distinction between reconciliation and restoration. Think of the analogy of a broken bone. If a leg is broken, the doctor sets the bone and the gap is healed. It's reconciled. This is what happens when someone confesses to us and we forgive her. In the same way, that a freshly set bone is not ready to bear weight, a broken relationship, newly reconciled, often needs time and help to be fully restored. A broken bone might need a cast or physical therapy for complete restoration. The same thing happens to a relationship following reconciliation. It often takes prayer, time, and focused effort to build trust back into a formerly broken relationship. A good rule of thumb, the greater the fracture, the longer the recovery time. Just as a healed bone that never bears weight will never grow stronger, relationships that are avoided or neglected will never grow stronger. God's grace and mercy enable us to strengthen reconciled relationships. We may send cards or emails, take extra time to share a gift that truly communicates love or any other countless acts of kindness 
that communicate our commitment to the relationship. Reconciliation is an event, but restoration is a process that slowly restores the relationship. So, in case you are wondering what happened to the disciplines, go ahead and flip over in your notebooks, because I didn't forget, and let's just take a quick look and see how, how does this apply to the disciplines. Well, the first discipline is she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Well, our first need, my first need, your first need, is to be reconciled to God. I must continue my relationship with God through his word, and I must remember the gospel and what Christ did for me by coming from heaven to earth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for my sin, rising from the dead, and sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for me. That's discipline one. As I'm in the peacemaking process, I need to remember what Christ has done for me. The second, she ministers to those in her household with her heart for God and the gospel. Well, is it any surprise that our homes are oftentimes where the most conflict happens. We need to be peacemakers within our homes and within our families. And the third is within ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, she, shefts, she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Now I can minister to those in my household and those in the church by seeking forgiveness when I have sinned, forgiving others when they, forget, when they sin against me, and I can go when I need to go, and I can receive graciously from others when they come to me. And I also want to rem or let you know, your homework this week, the last part of it is um, the point of suffering on the pain of suffering. And you may wonder, how does that fit in? Well, when we're in conflict, when, when, when things aren't right, when there's sin against us, it hurts. It doesn't feel good. It's painful. And so we thought this might be helpful to look at that and through the lens of those broken relationships that need to be restored. And if you're fortunate enough to not have anybody sinning against you or you're not sinning against anybody, I kind of don't think that happens because I know we live in a fallen world. But this, this will help you. If this isn't where you currently are, do the homework and remember that you have it. Because you may want to pull that out when you're in the midst of a conflict after you've done this homework and realize that will, that will help you. This, again, it's like that Mary Elizabeth Baxter said, this, these things come through the hand of God. It's not like God is asleep thinking, you know, not aware of what's going on. He's using these things in our life to conform us and make us more like Christ. So praise God for that. Pray with me, and then we'll ask Sarah if we have time for questions. So please pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for being a reconciling God. Lord, you did not need to save any of us, but you, in your grace and mercy and love, saved sinners. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your word so that we know how you want us to live, Lord. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that he came to this earth and that he died for our sin. You are a good and gracious God, and we are thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.